With each module's curriculum, the expertise of the InterMBA faculty moves us forward in our journey to become more wise and compassionate at work. We've created this podcast platform so that these sessions are available to you not only on the learning platform, but also here in audio format. It's our hope that having the core curriculum available in this way will enable you to experience these teachings at your own pace and in the way that works best for you. Let's, uh, let's pause for a minute. And before we jump into all this, is I'd like to ask you some questions, right? Like, why are you here? Right? Why are you here? And what do you want from this experience? Right? And even if you want to take a minute to just uh, make some notes, you know, what brings you here? And what are the questions you'd like answered as we move through this? Right? And what's motivating you to give your time and energy to this process, right? I'm sure you're very busy and you've got a lot of things going on. Like, why are you here? So if you take a minute, just even pause the video and write down some questions. What do you want? What do you want from this? Right? Write down what comes to mind. And then, and then as we go through, refer back to those questions and are you getting them answered? And at the end of this process, uh, what results would you like to be different? So, you know, I teach at the Drucker School of Management, and I'm sure that you know that Peter Drucker was considered to be the founding father of the discipline of management. And he had this notion that leadership was defined by our results. And after all, at the end of the day, something has to be accomplished, right? House has to get built. The product has to get shipped. The software has to work. The virus has to be managed, right? So what are the results you know, that we are being measured by? And I don't mean just quarterly results, but what are the results you have in your life that, that you'd like to be different? What are the results that you have right now that you're, you're proud of and that are, that are working well? You know? And so results could be something like the quality of your relationships, quality of relationships with the people around you, the people you live with, the people you work with, maybe the quality of sleep. Right. Or even, you know, how, how well do you, uh, do you enjoy yourself every day? You know, is work an enjoyable thing for you? you know, and so where are, what are the results that you're being measured by? What are the results that you measure yourself by? And what works and what doesn't work for you right now? Right. So if leadership is defined by results, Drucker also had this idea that you can't manage other people unless you manage yourself first which seems to be kind of a foregone conclusion, right? But uh, when I started teaching this nearly 20 years ago, my, my colleagues looked around at each other and said, well, we don't, we don't teach personal finance. Why would we teach you how to manage yourself? Right? And then 2008 happened and everybody freaked out and nobody ever asked me that question again. And so here we are nearly a decade later uh, with another collective crisis. And how are you managing yourself? Right? So to be clear, right, this isn't about managing your, your, the boss that makes you crazy or your team that you think is not so competent or the difficult person you live with, right? We're not dealing with those people out there, right? We're really dealing with you, 
And so be clear that, right, that the one thing that you can control is, is your own response to things and your own mindset and, and, in, and then the actions that you take from there. So how do we do that, right? So if, we're, if leadership is measured by results and you can't manage yourself, or you can't manage other people unless you manage yourself first, then I imagine there's like this figure eight, right? That we have two games to play. One is the game outside, right? The game that's probably your job or, you know, your set of responsibilities or the relationships you're involved in, right? All the forces outside yourself. And on the other side of the figure eight is the inner game, which is what this program is all about, right? Which is what's going on inside you, right? What are your, what's your mindset? What are the emotional reactions you're having? What are the assumptions and expectations and judgments and rationalizations and justifications you bring into a room? Right? What's your body telling you? Right? What's the quality of how you feel from any given, uh, from any given moment? Right? So you've got an outer game and you've got an inner game. And that ideally, when you play both of these games well, you're able to m- monitor those things in real time. So let me give you an example of a client I work with who works in uh, financial services. She's a partner. She's uh, very well respected. And... She is in a meeting with a very important client for her firm, multi-million dollar client. Somebody in that meeting says something inflammatory. A wave of anger kind of rolls through the room and including through my client. And she looks over at her client and notices that he's gathering his papers to leave. And if he walks out that door, her career is going with him right? It's, it's over. So she did what she was trained to do, which was first manage what was going on inside her. And she put her hand on the tabletop, which gave her attention somewhere to go and not get taken away by the anger that everyone else was experiencing. And then once that anger inside her subsided, she turned her attention outside into the room, acknowledged what was going on and what everyone was, was feeling and then really deftly redirected everyone's attention into a more positive direction. She glances over at her client. His papers are now back on the table. The day was saved. And so to me, that is the archetypal example of what happens when you learn to play both of these games well. When we only play the outer game well, and we don't have any kind of reference to what's going on inside, What's going on inside can hijack us and take us to places we don't necessarily go or want to go. And when we only pay attention to the inner game, sometimes that's not connected to outward action. Right? And so we need to be able to do both. And, and ideally, we need to be able to do both in real time. So for me, I, I had to learn how to do this uh, in real time. <laughs> big time, actually, you know, nearly 30 years ago, when I was 20, I was uh, diagnosed with uh, an incurable terminal illness and and told that I had uh, about five years to live. 90% chance of of dying within five years was was the prognosis. And I thought, well, 90% is good news uh, because somebody's got to be in the 10%. And I remember walking out of the hospital telling my father, I said, you know, dad, this is good news because I'm going to be in the 10% that lives. And so I thought very naively that if I 
if somehow I trans, if I like meditated and somehow transform what was going on inside me, that maybe I, a miracle would happen and I and I would live. And uh, strangely enough, uh, uh, I meditated and a miracle happened and and I lived. <laughs> and uh, but in any case, that's getting out of the story. I uh, I was just finishing my second year of college and uh, I went back to school. I was an East Asian studies major. My my mother's Japanese, and I, I spend a lot of time between these two cultures. And I went and talked with my professor, who's a professor of Japanese religion, uh, Eugene Swanger, who is still alive in his 80s, and we're still friends 30 years later. But any, in any case, um, he reaches into his desk and he pulls out a book. He pulls out this book, actually, The Three Pillars of Zen by Philip Kaplow. And uh, this book was the first book in English to teach Westerners how to do Zen. And... You know, I like to say that it's really important to, to know that in, in Japan, uh, Zen didn't come from California, right? That uh, it, was, it was the warrior's practice and that it, it gave you skill to look through, to see through fear and anger and rage and, and to be able to be calm in the face of your own mortality. And that's why these warriors, I think, were so attracted to it. So I, I went on this journey with this book and it it was uh it was a a light really that shined my way through understanding how to manage all this stuff that was going on inside me and that's that was the beginning of a journey very similar to the one that you're going to go on except um mine was much less efficient uh I, I traveled around the world learning different practices learning different things i could do with my mind and body to 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 transform it and I ended up, you know, as I said, living another 17 years. But, but in any case, um, I think without that, without that internal grounding, you know, being 20 years old and facing your mortality, but then also facing the, the need to make a life and the need to make good decisions, need to invest attention in something that's going to be growth-oriented and generative while also living day-to-day -day with extraordinary uncertainty. And like not knowing was today the day that it was all going to be over, right? Because that was a real possibility. And so I got advanced graduate training in how to deal with uncertainty. And, uh, and that's part of what I want to share with you today. So the question is um, really like, who do you want to be? Right? And, you know, what's your intention for your own life? And if you want to maybe even pause here for a second and just think about, right, as we've gone through this situation, like, who do you want to be? Have you been the person you wanted to be thus far? And what would you like to be different, right? What's that image of yourself that you would like to cultivate? One of my very first clients uh, was, a, was a, an entrepreneur, a, a genius businessman. His name's Mike Mugel. And... He dealt with, he, he was very successful. He was a real estate and very successful in his, in his late 20s, made hundreds of millions of dollars and unfortunately came from a family of alcoholics and came, uh, came face to face with the fact that all of this success he was having was not serving him well and nearly killed himself through alcohol. And in his own kind of recovery process, he developed this this practice really of imagining him living 
an ideal day in his perfect life, right? And it wasn't about what was in the what car was in the garage or how big this house was or how much money was in the bank account. It was an ideal life organized around what he was feeling, right? He woke up and he felt safe in his own home, right? And he felt loved because next to him was a person who was... Uh, who appreciated him and loved him unconditionally. And then he went to the office where he felt a great sense of challenge and camaraderie and teamwork in this organization that he had built. And, and, and the vision went through this, this kind of ideal day in his perfect life and it ended with him going to sleep, feeling like he had used his energy and resources in, in ways that, that served him and his team and family and community well, right? And he told me, he said, you know, whenever, I, whenever I'm encountering a situation where I don't know what to do, I ask the guy living my ideal life. And he said, what, I, what I'm always freaked out by is he always has an answer, right? He always has an answer. And I just do what he tells me, right? And he said, I thought it would take me, I was in my late 20s, early 30s when I was going through this, and I thought it would take me 20 years to kind of realize this vision I had in my life. And, and he said, seven years later, I woke up, you know, feeling safe next to a woman I, uh, who loved me and who I loved working in an organization that was incredibly successful, that had tremendous camaraderie. And, you know, he said, wow, I, I did it. I didn't realize I did it, but I did it. Right? And so for you, you know, that's kind of the, the goal I have for you, right? Is so that you can, you can manifest that in your own life. But first, you have to be clear about what, what do you want to be? Who do you want to be? What vision do you have of yourself and your life for your family, your company, and all of that, right? Because what's important is that it's understand that you're contagious, right? You know, no pun intended in this particular moment in history. But, you know, what, who you are, what you're doing, right, is broadcasting itself into your network, right? Your emotional reactions, your attitudes, Right? Your feelings are being read by the people around you. And if you're the leader, then you're even more contagious. And I like to say that an organization experiences the consciousness of its leader. And so, you know, are, how aware are you? How deliberate are you about what you're saying, what you're doing? Right? And so when I said earlier, right, this isn't about how do I fix my team? How do I uh, change the person I live with? How do I deal with my crazy boss? It's really about you. So then we asked the question in the beginning, like why, why do you do any of this stuff anyway, right? Why, why do this inner MBA? Why is this necessary? And I think there are three reasons, right? One, one of the reasons is like the condition of the world. Right? And the second reason is the condition of work. And then the third reason is the condition of humans themselves, right? And, and so let's just take a look at the world. We live in a world of VUCA, which is a term you probably have now become very familiar with. It was designed or defined by the Army War College at the end of the Cold War when they realized that communism versus capitalism was not going to be the, the reigning model for describing the world going forward. And they developed VUCA as a result. And so what's VUCA, right? VUCA is volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. So about until March of 2020, this was kind of an abstract conversation, but now it's not, right? Now it's not. Now this is, 
we are undoubtedly living in a VUCA world and it adapts and it demands that we be adaptive. And so again, let's take stock, maybe put this on pause for a minute, but how has VUCA affected you? How has it affected you personally? How has it affected you emotionally? How has it affected you in terms of your vision for your life? So if you think about yourself, and then let's just expand the circle outward. Right? How has it affected your family? How has it affected your organization? How has it affected the community you were involved in? Right? How has it affected your world? And so take a minute. Just write it all down. Right? Maybe this is the first time you've taken stock of this whole process. Right? So, and when you're ready, you can come back. So there's a second set of conditions, right? Which is the conditions of work. And and have you noticed that the world of work has changed dramatically in the last 30 years? Um, Because I think that a lot of people actually haven't noticed that the the world of work has changed a lot because we haven't really adapted to it very well. And Drucker talked about the notion that knowledge worker productivity, knowledge workers are people probably like you and me that use our minds to make a living, right? people productive that use their minds for a living is one of the greatest uh, of the 21st century management challenges, right? And in the develop, the so-called developed world, right? The, it's the survival requirement. How do you help people who might use their minds to make a living more productive? Now, truth be told, I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning asking themselves, how do I be more productive today? You know, I think they ask themselves, how do I live a life of impact? How do I get a good night's sleep? How do I have uh, harmonious relationships with the people that are important to me, right? And interestingly, th- those will play a role in this great drama of how it is that we, we be productive. Um, but one thing that's important to know is that there's a, I think our ingrained cultural habits around productivity are really defined a lot by the era of industrial work. And that there is a, a, a dramatic difference in what makes people kind of working in a traditional factory setting versus a productive, you know, what makes a person like that productive versus somebody who, who is uh, at a computer keyboard all day, right? That they're two very different kinds of productivity. And, and I know because I worked at a metal plating factory going through college. And I electroplated door hinges and uh, stamped out parts and things like that. And, and I think that implicitly we still see work defined in this way, right? And what are the qualities of this kind of work? That the job is clearly defined. I knew exactly what I had to do. I had to electroplate a barrel full of door hinges before my shift was ended, right? I could focus attention, right? That was the only thing I had to do. Nobody bothered me. Uh, evaluation was concretely measured, right? At the end of the day, I could count how many door hinges I had, I had electroplated, right? It was largely solitary. Nobody bothered me. Uh, There are clear time space boundaries. At 3.30, I went home and unless I had post-traumatic dreams about being chased by gigantic door hinges, I didn't think about work, right? And that, and that work, uh, that work on the weekend was, you know, not something that happened. And, the signature emotion, I think, of that whole experience was boredom. And so the challenge I had was how could I make it interesting for myself? 
right? How could I manage this experience to make it interesting? And, but if we shift to knowledge work, right? The primary asset of knowledge work isn't the machine, right? With the big electroplating uh, liquids and all of that, but it's, it's what's inside your head, right? We're using our minds to make a living. It's what's inside your head. And how do you relate to the other people um, that you have to collaborate with? You know, I think that there's, there are very few people that aren't working on teams, right? So it's both like the knowledge inside your head and then how you're able to capitalize on that knowledge together, right? So quality of relationship becomes essential in this process, right? And so if we think about knowledge work, right? The tasks aren't clear or they change from day to day, right? You're interrupted all the time. It's hard to focus. Evaluation is not clear often. Work is intensely relational, right? In a flattened hierarchy, how do you, how do, where does authority come from, right? And how do you convince somebody who's already investing their energy to give you a little bit of their energy to help you, right? And that time space boundaries are weak. I don't know anybody that goes home at 3.30 and not think about work or not devote at least a part of their weekend to work, right? I mean, you can even go on vacation and still be followed by work. And that the signature emotion isn't boredom, but rather anxiety. And so, so what that means for being productive is kind of hidden in plain sight. So stress is unrelenting. It's hard to concentrate. We have this a workplace of, of incredible emotional complexity right, today. Uh, one ill-thought-out tweet can ruin someone's career. Right? There's no structured downtime. And that quality of relationship is essential. And until COVID came along, you know, I called, I called this the new normal, but this is now the old new normal. We have a new new normal. And, and that the whole COVID crisis has, has amplified all of these qualities, right? There, in some cases, there's absolutely no boundary between home and work. Or when is there structured downtime? Or you've got, you've got to be able to read a team that you're not physically connected to. So, so what's going on with them? Right? And then how do you focus attention? And how do, you, how do you manage stress in all of this? And so I think March, April, May, this responding to, to coronavirus was really a sprint for a lot of people, but you can only sprint so long. And so really now it's a marathon. And how do you keep up your stamina and energy in this, in this situation for, for a circumstance that may be a year a year and a half, two years out until we really um, come to terms with it, okay? So relationship, the quality of your mind, and then the quality of your relationship really is what is at, um, at question here, and, and or what is our focal point here? And then, of course, a lot of people deride these things as the so-called soft skills, but if we're really honest with ourselves, there's nothing harder than dealing with yourself and other people, right? So how do you make a team effective? You probably know, you know, Google did this study of looking at what were the five keys to making teams effective. And um, here they are. So psychological safety, right? Can you take risks on the team without feeling insecure or embarrassed? Dependability, can you count on each other to do high quality work on time? Structure and clarity, right? The goals understood, roles understood, execution plans understood. Is work meaningful, 
right? Is this something that's personally important to you? And then what, what's the impact of the work? Do we feel like it really matters uh, in the world? Now, which of these five things, psychological safety, dependability, structure and clarity, meaning of work, impact of the work do you think is, is most important? Right? Interestingly enough, right, it's psychological safety by far was the most important factor. And for reasons that we'll, we'll talk about later, but if, and, and this is why, but if somebody doesn't feel safe, right, then they're not going to share their knowledge with you. They're not going to, the relationship isn't going to be as smooth or honest or transparent. If, you know, if somebody doesn't feel like they can, they can voice their opinion without being attacked or teased or derided in some way. Right. And so this is why understanding what are you putting in your network? You know, what are your reactions? What's your own internal state like? Having a, having a finger on that pulse becomes even more important. And, and the reason why was because the, the teams that were deemed psychologically safe were far more effective, right? They brought in more revenue. They were less likely to leave the firm. They were better at harnessing diverse ideas. So they're more creative and that they were, they were rated effective uh, two times more by the execs that they reported to, right? So at, at the end of the day, what this means is, is our people's nervous systems not on defense mode, right? Do I feel like I have a place here, right? And so here's some of the statements that are kind of measures of psychological safety, right? Do you agree or disagree with these things? You know, if I make a mistake, it's held against me, right? Um, am, I, am I able to bring up problems and tough issues without recrimination, right? Uh, do people on the team reject others for being different? Uh, I, had a, I had a student that worked for a large Japanese uh, automobile manufacturing company. And when he went back to Japan, people teased him about the color of his socks. You know, okay, do I really want to contribute uh, because I'm getting teased for something stupid like this? Right? So is it safe to take a risk? Right? Is it uh, difficult to ask for help? You know, would anybody on this team deliberately act in a way to undermine someone else on the team? And then, right, are, is my, are my unique skills and talents valued and utilized on this team, right? So the extent of how you measure up to these seven statements is, is a good gauge of whether or not your people feel safe or not. So the third thing, the human condition, Right? So we have the conditions of the world, conditions of work. Well, what about conditions of just us humans? And, and I, I like to think about these are the things that we were never taught in school. Right? And, but they are instrumental in helping us be effective. So one is that your survival system overrides your capacity to be rational or to relate to others. Right? Again, going back to psychological safety and being aware. What are you putting in your environment? Right? So if you don't feel safe, the defense systems go on, I'm not contributing. Right? Or the relationship is getting undermined. The other thing, this comes from the work of Tristan Harris, right? that the attention economy is not really the attention economy, it's really a distraction economy. And so if the quality of our minds is what generates value, our capacity to focus attention, we're also living at a, at a time when any number of forces are arrayed against actually being able to focus attention, right? 
And so distraction is, is big business. And so your capacity to manage attention is probably not something you were taught in school. Now, this is interestingly where Japan is very different, right? That in that culture, traditionally, education started with being able to focus your attention, right? So you, as a child, probably learned calligraphy or swordplay or flower arrangement or tea ceremony as a way of cultivating your capacity to focus. And a generation ago, you weren't considered a mature human being until you had one of those skills under your belt, right? But in the brave new world of knowledge work, right, attention, you know, attention is being frayed. And one price we paid for that is that uh, it's easy to feel overloaded by the amount of information coming at us, right? And, and building on what we talked about earlier in terms of emotional reactions and safety, right? That the, that the more information coming at us also degrades our capacity to resist our emotional impulses. So we may act out on an emotional reaction that's not in our best interests or not in the team's best interests or not in your marriage's best interests, right? So, so that's another element, right? So we, we, our survival system overrides our capacity to, to relate and be rational. Our attention is getting distracted. We get overwhelmed from all of this stuff around us that, that causes us to be more impulsive. And the last one is that we're mostly mindless. Nobody ever teaches you that, but it's absolutely true that the vast majority of how we function is, is mindless. And, and we'll talk about this more later. But, you know, some people say 90% of the time you're operating on automatic pilot. Um, you know, my wife routinely sends me photos of my keys hanging out of the front door, you know, with the, with the label, Mr. Mindfulness Strikes Again. But so if that's the case, right, we're operating on automatic pilot and we don't know at any given moment what we're feeling or what, what uh, assumptions we're bringing into the, to the meeting uh, or how, simply how's your body feeling right now, right? And then, you know, if you're in pain, for example, you know, how is that affecting your capacity to see choices, right? Or if you're angry, how is that affecting your capacity to see choices? And then how does that influence the action you take and then the result you get, right? So again, leadership is defined by results. And yet if we're flying blind a lot of the time because of mindless habit, not really seeing what we're doing or why we're doing it, you know, how do we expect to be effective, let alone happy or, or healthy? So I like to ask the people I work with, how are you affecting the invisible office? Now, the visible office is the office that we all see, right? It's the computers, it's the desk, it's the water cooler. But then there's the invisible office. And the invisible office are the unspoken agreements we have or the unspoken beliefs I have about someone on my team or my boss or something like that. It's the... Um, it's the reticence I have to bring up a difficult topic, right? The invisible office is really what's affecting everything. It's our attitudes, it's our feelings, it's the unspoken assumptions, you know? And, and so we might be good at the outer game, um, for example, but we, we can be really lousy at the inner game because we don't necessarily know how to manage the invisible office. So my, my favorite example of this is a, is a former student of mine who was a scientist at NASA and his job was to 
calculate the navigational pathway of space probes through the solar system. So it was his team that put a space probe on Mars, or on, on Mars, but also Pluto, sorry. So to put a space probe on Pluto is like me standing outside my house in Los Angeles and throwing a dime across the country and getting it into a window in Rockefeller Plaza in Manhattan, right? That's basically what they're doing. And he, he's a genius and he can do that, right? In fact, he's been very successful at doing that. But when it comes to having a difficult conversation with somebody on his team, right? He would rather go through the entire bureaucratic rigmarole of reorganizing the team so that this fellow he had to have the difficult conversation with was on someone else's team in order to avoid having, ha having go through the emotional complexity of this, right? And so I thought, well, that's very interesting, right? Like you can put, you can put a space probe on Pluto, but managing your own anxiety or anger was something that was really difficult for him. And I thought, wow, you're kind of the, kind of the representation of Western society, right? Like we're so good at managing all this outer stuff, but managing the things that are closest to us seem to be an impossibility, you know? And we, I set up a scenario with him uh, doing a, a role play and I was going to be the person you had to have the difficult conversation with. And I set two chairs facing each other and I, let's, let's call him Bob. I said, okay, Bob, sit down and make yourself comfortable. And the first thing that Bob did was take his chair and he pulled it all the way across the room until he was, it was like six or seven meters across the room. And then, then he sat down and we were like really far apart. And he said, okay, I'm ready to have the conversation. And I looked and I said, do you notice that we're kind of far apart? <laughs> and he hadn't, and he looked around and he goes, oh, I guess we are. And I said, so like, what are you feeling in your body right now? And he was quiet for a minute. And that's when it hit him. He said, I want to run the hell out of this room. Right? And that's when he finally saw like what was going on in his body and how was that affecting his ability to interact with somebody, right? He wanted to leave the room. If he could, if the door was open, I'm sure he would have pulled the chair out into the hallway and down the hall, right? But what was happening inside him was largely invisible to him until he started to pay attention. And that's, that's what we're going to do, right? That's what we're going to do, right? Again, like what are you putting into your network, right? And eventually he had that difficult conversation and, and he, he, he worked it out. He's quite a remarkable person. And I wish I could tell you his name, but he's, he's uh, one of the people that I really enjoyed working with over the course of my career. So again, like why, why do this stuff, right? Um, there's three reasons, right? The conditions of work, conditions of the world, and the human condition. And as the world VUCA fies, right? Because I don't think VUCA is going to go away anytime soon right? Is your capacity to meet these challenges becoming more sophisticated, right? Just like my student had become more sophisticated about his own emotions to have a difficult conversation with somebody on his team. Is your, is your ability to deal with these situations becoming more sophisticated or is your default reaction just running faster, trying to get more stuff done? 
right? So I tend to think that, you know, we have this, we have this mental model in our head that if I just make more effort, if I just keep running faster, stay up later, wake up earlier, right? I'm going to get it all done. But at some point, your biology starts to wear out. Excuse me, your biology starts to wear out. And, you know, these reactions that are designed to give us energy start undermining our own capacity to be effective and they undermine our health, they undermine our mental health. We sink into states of, of depression or burnout, right? And then a few years ago, two researchers, you know, named something called leadership lockdown syndrome, right? Which is what happens when your nervous system is on high alert so much that you can no longer process information effectively. And that impacts your ability to think, your memory, your capacity to make decisions, your judgment, you become more rigid, you become more emotionally reactive. They're all things we heard earlier. And so, again, kind of going back to the questions I asked you about, like, where are you now and where do you want to be? Who are you now and who do you want to be? Right? Does any of this ring a bell or sound like uncomfortably too familiar. So then, then the question is like, how do we start to bring this into your life? And um, this is part of the faculty, you know, this is my job. And, uh, and with the others, you're going to have the great privilege of working with. Right. And so, you know, how do we move from blind action, not really be able to see our own gauges on our, on our dashboard to be able to read them, to figure out how they're influencing the choices we're making or the choices we perceive that we have or the actions we take and then eventually the result we get to acting in a way that's clearer, right? And more intentional and wiser even, or maybe even more compassionate, caring, or, or dare I say loving, right? And so I don't have answers for you, but I have a lot of questions. And, and some of the questions I'm gonna ask over the course of the nine months of working together, like what's happening in your body right now? Just like I asked Bob, like what's happening in your body right now? And what are the emotions you're experiencing, right? And then what are the stories you're telling yourself? You have a difficult meeting in a half an hour. What are the stories you're telling yourself about this meeting? And how is that influencing the, the choices you perceive you have? And if you were able to let go of those stories, would some other better choices open up? Right? Because those choices inform action that, that get you the result. And again, leadership is defined by our result. So at the Drucker School, we have a question that we ask people. It's not, did you enjoy the program or did you enjoy the class? But rather, what are you going to do differently tomorrow morning? Right? In fact, we call it the Monday morning difference. What are you going to do differently on Monday morning? And so that's my question for you. Like on Mon when Monday morning comes, what are you going to do differently? And what I hope you do is enjoy the adventure that we have planned for you. It's going to be quite a ride. And I'll be here, and you're going to meet some uh, fascinating cast of characters, and I, and I really uh, wish you well. So good luck. Thanks a lot. Take care. As always, we love to hear from you. Please share your insights with us in the sandbox or write to us at innermba at soundstrue.com. 
And thanks for being part of the Inner MBA and for both the inner and outer work you do to benefit others.